Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news, interviews, opinions, and everything else. I am Heidi McDonald. I am the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can find us pretty much on all social media at, at PW Comics World. We are on Twitter, we are on Tumblr, we are on Facebook, and you can always find our coverage at publishersweekly.com slash comics. So this week on More to Come, I'm very, very happy to welcome Douglas Wolk, author, raconteur, karaoke expert, uh, the man, really. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Um, so, you know, trivia note, I actually replaced you at Publishers Weekly about 20 years ago. Remember that? <laughs> I, I guess you technically did. I'm, we've known each other for like 25 years or yes, so. Yes, yes, quite a long time. And uh, Douglas used to be my editor, then I was his editor. So we just, you know, swap off over the decades. But um, we're here to talk about your new book, uh, which is called All of the Marvels, right? Yes, indeed. And coming out from Penguin on October twelfth. Uh, very good. Which uh, should be right the same week that you're listening to this. Um, Douglas, you told me your idea for this years and years and years ago, and I said you were crazy. And then over the years, I'd run into you, and you'd say you were still working on it. I said you were crazy. And now the book is out, and I'm like, well, he wasn't that crazy, but you're still no, crazy. I was. Yeah, you are still crazy. So yeah. tell us what this book is about. So all of the Marvels is about reading all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics from 1961 onward as one gigantic story and looking at the way that it kind of reflects the last 60 years of culture and how it works how it works as a story as a gigantic ongoing never-ending unendable narrative Yes, and that did that involve reading twenty seven thousand comics, correct? Sure did. Okay, that's the Flaming Carrots origin five times over. Yes, sirree. And uh, and how long did it take you to do this book? Uh, it took about five years in all. I didn't think it was going to take that long. Only took about two years to do all the reading, uh, and I was doing <laughs> other stuff during that time. But there was there was a lot involved. There was a lot of reading there was a lot of writing there was a lot of rewriting the book went through a few iterations before i finally landed in a form i was totally happy with right um so i I, you again you would allude to those when when we uh you know ran into each other and i definitely want to get back back to that um but i guess my first question is how did you gain access to these twenty-seven thousand comics now obviously the original marvel you know, comics go for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars now. And, but a lot of them are being reprinted, but not all of them. So, you know, yeah. reading them all was not the hard part. Hmm. Marvel Unlimited was fantastically useful. They don't have everything, but they have a lot of things. And then I had a lot of comics and friends had a lot of comics and libraries had a lot of comics. And it, it was really not that hard to track down everything on my gigantic, terrifying spreadsheet. The the real problem was finding enough hours in the day to read them all. Right, right. So, yeah, again, what was your working process? It's like, you know, get up, 8 a.m., 9 a.m. if you're Heidi, or 10 or 11. Uh, you know, make a cup of coffee, uh, sit down, read some Marvel comics. 
sit down, read some Marvel comics, get on a treadmill, read some Marvel comics. Uh, if I was on public transportation, I would have my you know, tablet with me or my phone with me and I'd read some more. Uh, there's a little bit of a story in the book about how I accidentally ended up reading a few issues at Burning Man. I didn't mean to. But, you know, I went out there and it was the year that Stanley had died and somebody had set up a little Stanley memorial and I was looking at it and behind it there was a box and the box said, read me. And I opened it up and there was a bunch of like beautiful old like issues of Tales of Suspense and Tales to Astonish from the 60s. And, you know, what was I going to do? Not read them? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and later that night I got bitten by a radioactive spider, but that's a whole other Well, story. there you go. That probably enabled you to finish the book. So did you – so you – okay, let's talk about – just how your thinking on this project evolved, though. Now, you set off with the idea of looking at this as an overarching story, and um, how did it change? Because I know you did have to revisit it. It did. I mean, for a while, a lot of it was focused on, like, okay, let's telescope this half million pages plus into a single narrative and see what it looks like as narrative, break it down, see what its themes are, see what it, see if it breaks down into, you know, thematic sections. And there's a little of that still in there, but really I found when I did that, I was getting way too deep into the weeds and it was way too much me talking to myself. Mm. And I realized that one of the important things to do with this was make it kind of a guided tour of this enormous territory for people who were interested in this giant story, but where do you start and where do you go and how do you make sense of it and how do you decide what you're going to read and what you're not going to read and how and all that. And so thinking about it much more as a tour from somebody who has explored every inch of the territory to not necessarily even the high points, but the representative points, the points that will let people who are interested in this story get the sense of it and get the sense of what it means, what it means outside itself. Right. And that's how it all really came together. So there are some chapters that are you know, focused on particular characters, focused on particular series, focused on particular you know, parts of the narrative. And then there are some that are like, let's, let's look more at this idea of monsters and how the monsters that were so much of a part of the story early on related to what was happening in the world and the kind of fears that we culturally had about what is monstrous, what can you not let into your house, what does atomic power mean? Because that's that's the big thing behind uh -huh. monsters early uh -huh. on. Uh, and talking about movies and where the idea of movies intersects with the story. Not so much what's going on in the MCU movies as much as I love them, but what does this idea of movies that keeps coming up within the comics, mm -hmm. what, what does that say? What does that do? How does that act? Uh, and so there's part of it that's at the beginning that's like, okay, here is me taking readers by the hand. This is this enormous mountain of 27,000 comics. How do you approach it? What do you do with it? What do you do about the fact that you're going to be confused no matter where you enter the story? <laughs> and that's okay. That is a feature, not a bug. <laughs> right. And thinking of it as as a fun thing, as a thing that can be enjoyable. And then the end, there's there's a story about like, my own connection to the story and my son's connection to the mm -hmm. story. 
mm-hmm. which I, which you had not mentioned to me uh, overtly. So when I read that, I was actually very touched um, oh, by that you. part of the story. Um, you know, it's funny because in a way, you're, what you're talking about is you're actually uh, retrofitting Tom Brevoort, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Tom Brevoort is a long-running editor at Marvel. I know he's been there since, like, the early 90s, late 80s. And um, so, and he is the continuity god at Marvel. You know, it was the late Mark Grunewald was right. one for a long time, and then um, Tom Brevoort took over. And he is kind of the keeper of the flame of that. And, uh, you know, some people think that take is is a little dated for t- uh, today's audience or some of today's audience, but obviously Marvel's still pretty successful. So, so, so people, you know, you're not the only one who was invested in this idea of one meta narrative of the Marvel universe. Right. I mean, the thing I love about the Marvel story is there is so much history in it and there's so much kind of stuff that is in the past that you don't even necessarily have to know about to enjoy what's going on in the story in the present, but it informs it. It's behind it. it. It's it's this richness that stories can draw on or not as they choose. But it's there and it's always it's always present and it's always pushing everything forward. Mm-hmm. I really like that. That, that. You know, that there is this this kind of overarching um, narrative. I mean, who, where do you think that comes from? It came together really accidentally. I mean, no, none of the people who were making the Marvel story early on had any idea that people, you know, 40, 50 years later would see it as a single unified thing. It was never meant to be read as a single mm. story. Nobody was ever meant to read all of it. But there were ways that parts of it talked to each other. And Jack Kirby and Stan Lee especially, uh, around 1965, 1966, you start seeing more kind of crosstalk within the Marvel story than just like, oh, there's Spider-Man swinging Uh, by. uh You see events from one story having consequences in a completely other series. And that's special. That's interesting. And that's something that, you know, the MCU totally picked up on. And it's one of the things that it makes it work as a body of stuff. People get excited for the new MCU movie. Right, right. And I mean, obviously, Kevin Feige has picked up on that for the films and which I I do consider one of the, you know, great achievements in film. The fact that he's taken these 20 plus movies and made them like Marvel Comics. There are callbacks, there are footnotes, there are, you know, foreshadowing. There are, I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And the most amazing thing of all is that he is not even a comics fan. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I, when I read that, I was so sad and disappointed. You know, he's not one of us. He's just somebody who was able to pick up on what people like about our world, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah. And he found a special thing. Sorry. He did. He did. And, but I mean, Marvel, obviously, I mean, it is the Marvel versus DC thing. And, you know, you mentioned in there that your son is Marvel all the way. You know, I'm Marvel all the way. I tried to read DC Comics, tried to work at DC Comics, and it was a disaster both times. You know, I just, I've never been able to get into DC characters, except Teen Titans, which were written by Marv and George, who was like Marvel. It was the most Marvel-like of all the DC Comics. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. But, I mean, I was a DC kid. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Like Green Lantern, The Flash, like that was that was my thing when I was I see. nine years old, ten years old. I see. <laughs> uh, I, I I embrace it all now, Heidi. Mm. I love it all. Uh, 
Anyway, how'd you get into Marvel? How'd I get into Marvel? You know, kid across the street from me had some issues with Daredevil. He read my Batmans, I read his Daredevils, and then, you know, I picked up, uh, I started picking up X-Men in the late summer of 1980, which was a real good time to start picking up X-Men. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Within a couple of years, I was working at a comic store as, you know, 12, 13 year old, and at that point, I just started, I just started reading everything. Started mm-hmm. liking everything. Right. Uh, you realize there was that, well, that is the age where our tastes begin to, you know, form our adult tastes. So, you know, it was a formative time. Formative time. You know, did I ever tell you, I'm gonna, uh, uh how I started reading Marvel comics. Tell me. Uh, because, um, I think that's a little germane to what we're talking about. And, uh, you know, I read kids, little kids comics, of course, dating myself, but, uh, you know, growing up, I would read, uh, Carl Barks, Little Lulu, uh, did not like Archie, never liked Archie, Harvey comics. Those are the ones I read. And then I was about the same age as you. I was a little, little, uh, before you, but 12, 13 years old, maybe 14. And, uh, you know, we got all these weird magazines in my house and there was one that was, uh, educators, like for, for teachers, because I was homeschooled. So my, my grandmother who was homeschooling me subscribed to this teacher's magazine and there was an article interviewing Stan Lee in here that talked about how Marvel comics were really literature and it was, you know, how he was telling the story and, you know, really talking it up. You know, this was a period of the 70s, you know, the mid to late 70s when Stan definitely was promoting this narrative, you know. And so, you know, the fact that he would be in a teacher's, a magazine for teachers at this time isn't isn't surprising. But anyway, I read that and then I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I should investigate this. And then they did have spinner racks at the the James Way, the the horrible department wow. stores. You know the crappy department stores of the past. You know, it wasn't just Target and Kmart. There was all these little weird department stores that were, you know, godforsaken on Route 22. But uh, anyway, yeah, I think I went to, it was either Food Town might have been Food Town. Food Town had this spinner rack that was, and the comics were just decimated. You know, they <laughs> were bent over. They'd been there for so long. They were yellowing. It was awful. But, um, yeah, I picked up, uh, picked up a, a Spider-Man and a Fantastic Four. And it just so happened that the Fantastic Four that I picked up was the one with the Impossible Man, where wow. he's going through the Marvel office. And so it had all these jokes about people, and I was just, and even though I knew nothing, I knew absolutely nothing about it, and I was entranced. I was absolutely wow. entranced. And you know, it had all the footnotes. And then mm-hmm. probably, you know, I started buying more, and then I, I got uh, X-Men, my first X-Men, and then it was off to the races, you know? Right. Um, and because it did have, but you did have this feeling of, you know, then, Getting into the story, picking up this comic, and that you were dumped into the middle of something that was already full tilt and very exciting and very complicated and very important. And, um, you know, you wanted to catch up on it. And I feel like, you know, us now cranky old coots, you know, complain that nobody can get into the comics now. And I I suspect if you're at the right age and the right... um, right curiosity level that it's it's the same for readers today yeah i mean 
you pick up something and you're in the middle of the story and not all of it makes sense. Some of it makes sense. Some of it does make sense. And then there's all these references to other things. That's what the internet is for. And that's what your curiosity is for. And if it's a comic that's well-constructed, even if it's set in this giant shared world, even if it is built on all of this history, you're, it's still going to tell you what you need to know. There's just more that you're not going to quite get, but it might make sense to you later. And for every one of those, you're going to have a, oh, I get it now. Right. Later on. right. Those moments are great. <laughs> right, right. Well, I just would point out, though, that when you and I started reading Marvels, there was no internet. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really had to work for it. Now, I think a pretty uh important part of all this. So it's, you know, it's just talking about kind of this Bronze Age, uh you know, 1980. So that would be 19 years uh or 18 years after uh Marvel Universe started, which, you know, now it's 18 years after... Bill Jemis took over Marvel. So, you know, which, which when you look at it in that way is, is pretty incredible. But, but, you know, one of the really, uh, important artifacts of all of this was, was Mark Grunewald and Mm his, his omniverse, right? Right. The omniversal theory, which was another thing that I read. So basically it was a fanzine that, that Mark Grunewald and Dean Mullaney, who would go on to found Eclipse Comics, put out where they really did try to make a whole, uh, you know, theory of the Watcher and all this cosmic stuff, but you know how how there was this was one story, and I think that led. I don't know where where did the term Earth six one six come from. So Earth six one six was apparently created coined by Dave Thorpe mm-hmm. in his scripts for the Captain Britain stories before Alan Moore took over. Mm-hmm. It was in the script. It was not in it was not in the letter text. It was just what he referred to. And Alan Moore started using that term in a couple of his Captain Britain stories, and somehow it kind of caught on. And I love the idea that you know the sea, the Earth that Marvel stories is set on is not. Earth One. It is not the most important place. It is one of many, many, many possibilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's the genius of Alan Moore, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, or of Dave Thorpe. You know. uh, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I would love to know the origin, though. I mean, do you think that like Dave Thorpe just came up with this on his own? Yeah. Uh, could be. I. It is shrouded in mystery. As hmm, far as I know. Interesting, very interesting. But Ken, for listeners who might not know, can you explain a little bit though about the Earth numbering system for uh, Marvel? Well, I mean, there's not really a system. There are enormous numbers of worlds and possible worlds, and you know, the one that you and I live on is Earth twelve eighteen, which incidentally was destroyed about six years ago, but then reconstructed exactly as it had been. So oh. we're we're, we're simulating of that. Uh, sure, uh, made some improvements. Anyway, go on. Yeah, uh, but there. So the main Marvel world, the one where most of their comics take place, is six one six, but every story involving every version of Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. the the uh, Marvel movies, the uh, <clears throat> the any movies, any TV shows, whatever, any version of those characters is somewhere you know it is included in the canon of marvel story it just might be happening in a parallel universe which probably has a number i think the mcu is like earth one nine 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 something like that 
wow. This is, this is, you can go so far down the, the rabbit hole on this. Now, um, it's one of the things you do talk about is, you know, obviously the social relevance of, or, you know, the social, I, I guess, I mean, Marvel Comics, people who complain about Marvel being political are, you know, total <laughs> morons. Uh, excuse yeah. me, I can't use that word. Uh, it's people who complain about Marvel are total, uh, you know, being political are just totally ignorant about the actual history. Because it's always, it's always been, it's always had some kind of um, always, political. Always, yeah. yeah, I mean, st- Jack Kirby, right? The, the cover, so the first issue of Captain America came out. A year before Pearl Harbor. Uh-huh. On the cover, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, Captain America is punching Hitler out. Yes. This is published at the end of 1940. Yes. It is explicitly an argument for the U.S. to get into World War II. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's a whole book now about, uh, propaganda comics. I mean, during World War II, comics were a huge source of propaganda. Um, yeah, yeah. and they were also a very powerful, um, tool for Americans as they came to, to you know, conquer various countries. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the GIs with their comic books were actually one of the greatest influences on the comics medium, um, during World War II and following World War II. But, um, but to bring it forward, like you're talking about the atomic age. So again, in 1962, everybody was still recovering from, the threat of the atom bomb. You know, this was uh, what everybody was obsessed with and the monsters and the gamma radiation and, you know, the children of the atom. All of that definitely reflects that. Now, if you go forward, uh, I think one of the things that you talk about in your book is just really how interesting the whole Civil War, secret invasion period of Marvel was. And, you know, obviously, I think 9-11 yeah. was... Yeah, you know, it provided a whole new impetus for Marvel Comics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but whatever's going on in the culture is always reflected a little bit later in the comics, or sometimes even a little bit earlier. I mean, I have this whole thing about how the Dark Reign period of Marvel, which is Dark Reign, is a story that basically extended its tendrils into pretty much everything Marvel published that was set on Earth for an entire year. And that year was 2009. Hmm. And it is incredibly foresighted in its sort of evocation of the Trump administration. And it's a story that was published in the first year of the Obama administration. Hmm. Right. Well, uh, and who, who was, who were the creators of that? I, so that the main, the main writers behind it at the time were Brian Michael Bendis and Matt Fraction. Mm-hmm. And, It's not a reaction against Obama because it's conceived before the election. Right. Uh, It very specifically has a couple of roles for the new president early on that, you know, cast him in a a relatively favorable light. But it is about what happens when political power falls into the hands of genuinely malign people who are authoritarian and autocratic and bending towards fascism Mm -hmm. and – the way that that presence can get its fingers into absolutely every aspect of life. Mm. Norman Osborn, who is the heavy in that story, who is the authoritarian autocrat, he's 
always in the background of every story, even if you don't see him on panel. Everybody is just kind of making plans for, like, what if Osborne does something? Uh-huh. And at the center of it is the Iron Man story. And for 60 years, Iron Man stories have been stories about the military-industrial complex and how we feel about it in the U.S., I mean, he's literally an arms manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and in the 1960s, early on, it's rah-rah, he's an arms manufacturer, he's pretending it, he's protecting us against the forces, quote, behind the Iron Curtain. They never right. said Russia or China. For some reason, it was always behind the Iron Curtain. Uh-huh. And later on, you know, you see him going to Vietnam at a point where people are starting to feel a little more uncomfortable about that. By the early 70s, there are student protests taking place outside the Stark Industries factory, and there's you know, th- this practically Kent State scene that happens there, where, you know, a bunch of protesters get killed, and of course the next issue, like, somebody else is like, oh yeah, uh, we thought they were killed, but actually they were fine. But- <laughs> <laughs> they were just, they were just pining for the fjords. Exactly. Uh, so you see a little of that, but by the period of Dark Rain, what we see the military-industrial complex having turned into is very much focused on information and information security and surveillance. Uh. For the year of that story, there are surveillance cameras absolutely everywhere in Iron Man, uh. and that is what it's about. And the old-school arms manufacturer, Tony Stark, spends the year erasing his own memory, wiping himself clean so that he can't remember the things he's done. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it's right there. Yeah. There, no, there's uh, – it's – it's uh, there's a lot of amazing, amazing social commentary uh, in all these books. And, uh, you know, like I say, I think Mark Miller with, with Civil War, I mean, sorry, it's a very flawed work, but, um, you know, it's a powerful, it's a powerful piece. And it, it, um, obviously the arguments in it are still going on right now. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really, uh, touched on something. But, you know, with Secret Evasion and, um, House of M, I mean, all of these, there was, you know, when I, I stopped reading Marvel Comics, I was just covering it at that point. Correct. So, you know, I had to just kind of be uh, aware of them. But but looking back, I'm like, oh, you know what? There was more a little more to it than, than we gave them credit for. Yeah. Or at least those of us who are, you know, snarky pundits on the Internet gave them credit <laughs> for. So, Douglas, what is your favorite period of Marvel? My favorite period of Marvel? Uh I like to say whatever's coming up next. Um, I really, I really do like a lot of the stuff from the last two years worth of the X-Men books, like the, the, uh, Krakoan period X-Men stuff. I literally read those every week as they come out. I am mm. enjoying them so, so, so much. Now this is so, the, the Hickman, the Hickman and Jonathan Hickman inspired, right? It is, it, well, it's, it's, it's the thing that Jonathan Hickman started. Right. But then there's this kind of cluster of writers around him who are carrying it on now and really all, just about all doing fantastically interesting things. Uh, I think that's a really lovely period. I love the 60s, um, just when it's Kirby and Ditko and Lee and Don Heck and a little later, John Romita, John Buscema and Watching them just invent everything out of whole cloth is amazing. Mm-hmm. There's a period in the 80s where 
there are so many creators who are just like finding a voice of their own and it's extraordinary. Um, there's that period around, you know, around the period of dark rain. Like mm-hmm. a lot of those comics are super, super fun and interesting and all kind of talking to each other in not, not like crossing over directly between series, but there are shared currents. You can see everybody's kind of on the same page about where the story is going and where it's going to end up. And then they get to play with, whatever happens in between point A and point B. Yeah, there's there's a lot of those. I keep I keep finding comics I like at periods that I would have thought of as kind of fallow periods. Uh, interesting. Because the Marvel method now, I mean, does involve uh you know, it's heavily driven by editors. And there's a Marvel summit uh every you know I mean I think they have several of them during the year where they get all the writers in a room and they kind of they kind of do, you know, sit at table and hash out some of this stuff. They do, uh, but also you see the way that it plays out is sometimes like, okay, here here are some big things that are going to be happening. Everybody gets to react to them in their own way. Uh-huh. And that, I think, is that's an interesting kind of storytelling, and it's you know, a kind of storytelling that you also see in the MCU, in the TV series, but it, it's not a kind of storytelling that you can get in pretty much any other medium a lot of the time. Right. Where, you know, there's, there is a story that there are a number of different perspectives you can see it from, some of which are very closely tied to like those central events, some of which are not at all. And you can pick and choose which ones you care about. Right, right. And you know, you have favorite creators also that you follow. I mean, who are some of your favorite writers and artists, or favorite Marvel writers and artists? Favorite ri- Marvel writers and artists? Uh, Rediscovering Gene Day. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Just in the process of doing this book, um, he was he was exceptional. Um, rediscovering Mark Grunewald, like mm-hmm. he he was such a strange writer and not graceful in the way that some writers are graceful, but also just so full of ideas and so full of like, let's try something different. I I loved seeing that. Uh, for for people working right now, like Al Ewing, really just about like everything he touches turns to gold. As far mm. as I'm concerned, I I knew you were gonna like Al Ewing. <laughs> oh, he's, he's so good. He he's got such an enormous range. Um, he thinks so deeply about okay, what what is interesting about this character. Why do we care? What and what comes out of that is stuff like Immortal Hulk, which is uh, right. a gigantic hit. And it's like one of the best Hulk stories ever. Uh, and then there's stuff he does like Sword, which you know, some of it is – he does fantastic storm stories. He also does a fantastic story with Manifold. Uh, he also even, does a fantastic story with Peeper. <laughs> I don't even know who these are. So, you know, they're after my time. Peeper is a throwaway character from a 1976 Jack Kirby Captain America annual. Oh, well, of course. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Squirrel Girl got rehabilitated. You know, and reading about Squirrel Girl, um, I think people forget, obviously, Steve Ditko has been in the news because of the copyright, um, you know, uh, issues with his stories. But, um, you know, he did work for Marvel after... After Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, you he, know. He, he worked with Stan Lee again. After yeah, that. right. Why is why does nobody know that? I don't know. I mean, 
not a lot of people know about like the Lee and Kirby book length collaboration from 1978. Right. What was that? That was the Silver Surfer graphic novel. Oh, of course, of course. When Fireside was publishing, you know, Bring on the yeah. Bad Guys and Origins of Marvel Comics, they also did an original 100-page, brand-new Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Silver Surfer graphic novel. Right, right. And then he later did one with Mobius, right? Uh, yeah, Lee and Mobius did another, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, because everybody talks about the Mobius one because of Crimson Tide, where they argue right. which is better. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I actually own that somewhere, although it might have burned up. But, uh, yeah, I had that. You're right. Nobody, nobody talks about that. So, interesting. Interesting. There are so many byways and highways of this history. Um, so, yeah, so was, what was the biggest surprise? That you had. What was the, you know, did you have a misconception uh, that you turned out to be totally wrong when you started on this project? I guess one thing that I hadn't realized was how much there was in the way of comics about teenage girls and young professional women mm. in the early 60s, like 50s to 60s. There's a bunch of them. Like This was a substantial part of Marvel's line. They had their Western comics, they had their monster comics, and then they had their comics about young women. Uh-huh. And, you know, you know we, what we call that? Erasure. Yeah. Except the interesting thing is that they don't, the characters don't get completely erased. Uh-huh. They don't ever go away completely. They just become part of the story. Like there's I have this whole ongoing fascination with Linda Carter's student nurse. Uh, okay. Which was, this was like an Al Hartley and Stan Lee comic. It was the first comic to have the MC logo on its cover two months before Fantastic Four number one. And it ran like nine issues. Uh. It's not very good. It's just really interesting. It's not very good. It crosses over with Millie the Model and Patsy and Hebe and Kathy the Teenage Tornado two months after Fantastic Four starts. There is like a multi-title crossover involving all these comics about young women. A crossover? A crossover, yeah. The characters from each of them appear in the others. And, right. you know, there are events from one that have consequences in another. Wow, okay. Yeah. I bet, yeah, that's amazing. This, and was was yeah. this written by Stan Lee? It was all written by Stan Lee, or at least oh. scripted by Stan Lee. Well, that would uh, explain, I don't think Stan's young women were his strong suit. But then, in 1972... Linda Carter comes back. She's in the comic called Night Nurse. Right. And then, 30 years after that, in Daredevil, she comes back again. Right. In Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev's run on Daredevil. Like, she just comes back. There is a woman who runs a medical clinic where superheroes who've gotten injured can go to get treated, no questions asked. And they call her the night nurse. And she keeps, and she keeps turning up. And her name turns out to be Linda. And she ends up dating Doctor Strange for a while. And, you know, she's involved with the Defenders. And she's still around. Uh She's just been in the story the whole time, in the background, just helping people. Wow. Just being a good person. And of course she was, um, on the, the Netflix averse of, of the MCU. She was in, um, uh, Claire Temple was the, the yeah, but that. but yeah. that yeah, Claire Temple was was based on on uh, on night, the Night Nurse character, which uh, you know, come to think of it, that whole Netflix verse was very very Bendisian, wasn't it? 
Bendis-esque. A little bit. I mean, you know, Bendis wrote that Defender series a couple of years ago that was all those Netflix characters together. Right, right, yeah. And, well, obviously Jessica Jones he co-created, yeah, and, you know, right. that was very much based on his his comics. But, um, yeah, but, you know, there was also... Uh, I'm just thinking aloud here. There was also the Marvel Creative Committee, which included Bendis, and uh, you right. know, it was it was. Hey, listen, he had a huge, huge, huge impact on comics, yeah, and continues to. So, um, good for him. You know, yeah. uh, he he his work is standing the test of time, at least for these times. Um, did you have any input or contact with Marvel itself? Not really. Not so much. Um, like tiny bit like hey we hear you're doing this book cool uh-huh. so do you do you know tom brevoort have you ever met tom brevoort i've never talked to tom brevoort uh i've commented on this blog a couple times like he's great i love his work that's huh. but I, I i don't think i've met him in person so uh if anyone from the new yorker festival is listening you should. This should be your in conversation, Douglas Wilk and uh, Tom Brevoort. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying this would be quite a conversation. So, are you going to do DC next, Douglas? <laughs> no, um, no. I think one monumental reading project that turns me into flaming carrot and ruins my <laughs> eyesight. Probably. Not. I mean, you know, I did. I did Judge Dredd already. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Right. Um, my next book project, I don't know exactly what it is yet. It there is a good chance it will have absolutely nothing to do with comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's time to take a break. It might be good to know, just take a little break. I thought when I was finished with uh, writing this book, like, oh, I may not want to read any Marvel stuff for a while. I might want to have a little break from it, and that's fine. And then you know, the next week, I was like. But there's a you know there's a new X Men out. I have to read that. It's, it's fine. I'm I'm back on the wagon. Right, yeah. right, right. Now, do you go? Are, are do you watch the MCU? Are you up on the, I, you know your films and your Loki and all that? I've been yeah, I've been watching all the MCU movies. I've been watching the uh, MCU uh, TV shows with my family. Uh, really looking forward to Hawkeye. That trailer looks yeah, awesome. It, it did, and so clearly based on the comics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I imagine that it might be some completely different thing. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't care. It looks great. But I mean, a lot of the, no, I mean, a lot of the visuals definitely were referencing yeah. some of the David Aha stuff, which, um, yeah, totally. you know, if you're going to take comics as storyboards, David Aha is absolutely already, you know, ready. You know, I'll tell you, sometimes I look at comics and I, you know, I used to edit comics and, you know, I do a little dabbling in editing on and off over the years. And, um, I guess when I was a kid, I didn't think anything of it, but now I'm just like, man, we ask these artists to sit down and not do one drawing on a page, but to do five, six, seven, eight drawings on a page. And, you know, it'd be like draw a man jumping into a car and then a woman, you know, putting on a dress. I mean, it's like, there's so much creativity. I mean, it's so not easy to do, Mm -hmm. to make comics. Yeah. It's breathtaking. The, The amount of absolute invention that goes into every single page, it's, it's, it's stunning. It is. And I, you know, even things that, um, you know, are minor at the time. Like I, just in case I didn't make it clear earlier, you know, Squirrel Girl, 
was uh, created, or you know, her first appearance was drawn by Steve Ditko in right. what was it, nineteen ninety one. Um, yeah, ninety. I think. Yeah, it was in the it was in the nineties. Yeah, so I mean, this was long after he said Spider Man no more. Um, and you know, she was a joke character, but since then she's come back and obviously has a real place in the Marvel universe now. I mean, you know, they're teasing the Young Avengers in the MCU. I'm sure it's just a matter of time until we're getting a Ms. Marvel TV show. Um, so you we know, definitely are. That's yeah, I'm so excited about that. Yeah, that one's in you know in production and. Um, you know, it's absolutely coming. And again, it's just kind of amazing how, how, just the creativity in, in here is just so astounding. But you know what? I, I want to ask you, I, I, sh- I had this down on my question list and I skipped over it, but I'm going to, so I'm going to backtrack. Right. But, um, you know, how did you approach the X-Men? Because as we know, you know, our, our, our mutual friend, Sorry, Dickens. Uh, Jay and Miles do a whole podcast that's up to like, you know, what is it, 300 episodes, untold hundreds of episodes. Right. Uh, explain, And they're only up to the 90s, right? Like yeah. the X-Men is the absolute, um, you know, uh, uh, Sagrada Familia of comics. <laughs> you know, it is uh, unknowable, un, un, unwrite-downable. Uh, how did you approach that? And X-Men was tough to conceptualize, and initially, actually, the first draft of the book I did, uh, I was like, how am I going to deal with X-Men? And it ended up being like a thousand words. It was just a few little bullet points, bam, 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 uh, X-Men are a whole thing. And then I realized, like, you know, that's, that's, that is not doing it justice. That is not being fair to it. That is not engaging with this thing that's incredibly important to me. I need to find my own way to engage with it and think about what this gigantic story says and jay and miles are inspirational like Mm. they're incredible people they also inspired me to do my do my own podcast which i've been doing for a while now the voice of latveria nice Uh, (laughs) it's you know the the uh it's a podcast that purports to be a cold war era propaganda like shortwave news broadcast from latveria Mm mm-hmm uh, but it's also about Dr. Doom's history and more genuinely about really whatever my guests want to talk about. But nice. uh, how do you approach the X-Men? And the X-Men have just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. But the metaphor at the center of that series as it developed over especially the 80s and 90s is so rich and so interesting that there's a lot of ways you can go with it. And so grappling with X-Men was trying to think about like, okay, how do you address this metaphor, which is a brilliant generalized metaphor for the subaltern, Mm. for anyone who is discriminated against on the basis of race, class, gender, Mm. whatever, but is not specifically a metaphor for anything. Mm There's nothing that it directly maps onto. You can't look at X-Men and go like, oh, you know, uh, Charles Xavier and Magneto are like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. No, 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 no. That does not work. Right. (laughs) You know, you can't say it's, uh, 
any particular thing that maps onto. It's kind of about, about sexuality. It's kind of about disability. It's kind of about race. It's not specifically about any of those. And if you try to make it specifically about any of those, it just completely breaks down. Mm. But you can see the idea of there is a group and there are divisions within the group and there are people who have tactics to protect their people that might be perfectly ethical and might be not and might be defensible and might not be. And the ideas within the group about what should be done changes over time. Uh The way that that group lives in the world changes over time. And the things that don't change is that there's something really special about belonging to that kind of community. It may be a community that there are, you know, <laughs> that, that if you belong to it, there may be terrible things that will happen to you, but there will also be you know, people who will be part of your group, who will protect you, who will have your back. Mm, right. Um, no, it's true. And, and it's interesting though what you said. I, I mean, I think, um, comics have always dealt very, you know, directly. Um, I mean, it's easy to, to, easier to deal directly with racial prejudice. Um, just because it's so overt and obvious. And I, I don't think it's always that easy to deal with ableism and, you know, certainly, um, you know, gender and how that has become so prominent, you know, today and just recognizing the, the, the spectrum of gender. But I, I, I think you're right. I think the X-Men always had those subtexts. And I think that's one of the things that, that's made it so durable was that it did have, you know, it, it, it covered such a, such a wide range of these issues that people have always been able to find in it something that, that, you know, spoke to them or that they, that, that made them feel that they belonged to this. And it's interesting that that, that didn't really start happening for a while. Like if you look at the 60s X-Men, that's not so much there. You can retroactively read that into it if you like, but there's not this idea of mutants as a community. Uh-huh. They're just mutants as a thing. Uh, Magneto, for his first 15 years, is just evil with a capital E. Brotherhood <laughs> of Evil Mutants. Like, right. bad person. Like, so he, right in the name! <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's not, like, a coherent ideology that is maybe different from Professor X's ideology. Like, at the point where Chris Claremont and John Byrne and Dave Cockrum, to some extent, bring that in, that's really clever and interesting, and it's retrofitted to what X Men has been up to, been up to up to that point. But it's kind of new, uh-huh. and there's so many ways you can go with it, and there's so many ways you have gone with it. You know, when Hickman the Krakoa stuff uh, started just a couple years ago, a lot of the reaction that people were having was like wait, they're not heroes anymore. They're, you know, what they're doing. I don't know if this is okay. Mm. Are there any, are there any heroes anymore? uh, Well, kind of, you know, Squirrel Girl. (laughs) Uh, Ms. Marvel. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Marvel is unambiguously a hero. Yeah. You know, that's true. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, it is, it is fascinating. I mean, the X-Men absolutely are, uh, 
they're very unique. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. probably the best way. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, like you said, I think, you know, take a little break from, um, from comics when your next project, but you are going to be uh, everywhere. Uh, you're going to be, you know, touring for this book yeah. and talking about it. And, um, so I'm happy we got you early in the process, relatively early in the process, I think. Um, I think this book is going to, uh, I think it's going to reach a lot of people. I mean, obviously all things Marvel are very, very popular right now, but I think this book really does give you a gateway to approach this 27,000 plus, uh, edifice. I really hope so. I had so much fun writing it, and I'm so, so, so happy with how it came out. Right. Well, uh, I think readers will be as well. Uh, well, Douglas, it's great catching up with you. Uh, congratulations on finishing this project. Um, <laughs> good luck out there on the road. And, Thank you. And as always, there will be more to come. <laughs> 